Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Well, today we finish up our series studying in depth the structure, message, and implications of the gospel. The topic for today is a controversial one, yet it is one that we believe is essential to a true and effective presentation of the good news. Thanks for walking with us on this journey and through the gospel as we examine this morning the implications of Jesus as Lord. Uh, this past week, I got an invitation from my wife's school to come in and help with some of their technology. Now, I am far from uh, IT professional, but I'm kind of uh, the nearest person who usually can fix someone's email to call. So they asked me to come and see if I could help set up the computers for the kids. And uh, I came in, and uh, the school is using, like most schools are using, Chromebooks. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chromebooks, but uh, the unique thing about a Chromebook is that it's generally a cheaper uh, manufactured type of computer that then is governed uh, by an administrative account. And so schools can make sure that the children only see the certain things that the school wants them to see. And the school in that administrative account can set up certain um, filters, they can set up certain bookmarks, they can set it up so the page loads upon a proper page, all specific to that school and to that teacher. Well, what I discovered as I came in is that all of these computers that they had received are actually licensed through a neighboring school, and they're still being controlled by that administrative account. So it did not matter whatever magic skills of hacking that I may have, which I don't have, but it didn't matter because altogether there was no change that I could affect within the computer until that top tier governing structure was changed. And I, I actually uh, brought this to the principal's attention and then received a text uh, from her later on in the day. She, she said she had to take them back to the original school. And you know what they had to do? They had to deprovision them. And then the, I think the technical term is wipe them clean. They had to just kind of completely wipe them out. And now, and only now, will those machines be able to be um, relicensed under uh, Emily's school's account. I know of no better metaphor for the description of the Christian life. You and I are born into a world being governed by a will that is not God's. You are governed by your own will and your own personal desires. In a seminary class, I remember learning, actually this is Bible college, that they said that the uh, in the garden, Adam and Eve, you all remember the story, in the garden, right? That there, what had happened when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the fruit, it says that they changed their allegiances and gave it to the devil instead of to God. And I don't believe that's exactly correct. I don't believe that you follow necessarily the will of the devil because it wasn't the devil who said eat the fruit. You remember the story? Adam and Eve there in the garden, it was Eve who was deceived by the serpent. And she said that the food was uh, uh, pleasing to the eye. It looked desirous for knowledge and good for food. And so she took it and ate it and gave it, to, gave it to her husband who was with her. Whose will were they following? They were following their own will. And that has been the consequence of every single one of their children. That is our struggle. You know, there is a, 
a word that we use in church so often that I think it's lost its meaning. It is a, a title that we give to Jesus, but the implication of that title is so often lost because we, we think it's something that, that just sort of comes as Jesus' prefix. We call him the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you've read it, you've sang it, but you've say, read it and sang it so many times, it just kind of goes by without catching meaning. We overlook it, and therefore, we miss the implication of what it truly means to call Jesus your Lord. I, you, you know, we do this with, um, like, Mr. and Mrs., too. Do you know what Mr. means? It's an old English word that was, I have to look this up. It's actually this, the uh, category uh, status right below um, a, uh, oh, now I'm blanking. I should have wrote it down. Uh, it was on, like a knighthood. So if you were uh, a, a knight, uh, right below that was a mister. And so we use it as a term of honor. Now, I, I would be the first to say I probably haven't taught my children properly that that's how you use it. We call Mr. Kuzak, Mr. Kuzak instead of, hey, you. So that's, you know, kind of how it gets get doled out in my family. But we use it so often we forget, we forget its meaning. And sometimes it's those very things that we take for granted that are most important, that become overlooked. How many of you thought about your breaks this morning as you drove here? Probably not many of you. How many of you thought about your heart beating in your chest right now? You, we're so used to those things, we take them for granted. But if either one of those things were to fail, if your brakes were to fail, if your heart were to fail, they would destroy the entire system. And this is exactly the premise that I want to call our attention to this morning because we are in this series studying the gospel. For eight weeks now, we've been looking at the formulaic version of it, that Jesus was crucified and died for our sins. That he was raised on the third day. That, that is straight the gospel. That is it. And then it's your duty, we looked at after this, to integrate what that means in your life. The transformation that has come from knowing Jesus Christ through the gospel. And that becomes a component of the gospel for you to share. We've studied how forgiveness must be seen with repentance. And then last Sunday, we looked at one of the implications of the gospel, which is grace. And in studying grace, what we looked at was there are two ditches on either side of the truth. One ditch that leads to licentiousness, right? That's the person who says, God loves you, bro. You're awesome, right? That's, that's that kind of grace that's missing an adjustment and an awareness to sin. And then the other ditch on the other side is the one that says, oh, you need to do something. Jesus gets you 99% of the way, but you have to infuse your own work and effort in order to truly be saved. Neither one of those are grace. And that is an implication of the gospel that must be shared as we understand it. So today is the last day for us to focus primarily on this subject. And I want us to address once more the implication of what it means to call Jesus Lord. Because there is no correct version of the gospel that doesn't also include the implication of Jesus' personal lordship. Uh, if you have your sermon notes, that's one of the first blanks there. I'll just say that again. There is no correct version of the gospel that doesn't also include the implication of Christ's personal lordship. What do you mean when you call him Lord? Or have you and I so become accustomed to the word that it's lost meaning. That's what we're going to try to recapture 
today. And as we do, we are going to come to the conclusion that the requirement in those who are truly saved is that we must be able to display the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It must be something that is evident in your lives. Otherwise, the premise is you haven't really heard the gospel. Any version that doesn't include the implications of his lordship is not the gospel because it's a requirement. So this concept of Jesus is Lord. You have three more blanks there in your sermon notes. Jesus is Lord is actually the oldest creed that we have. So very early on, within Uh, I think some um, uh, theologians and historians say within a matter of weeks, this became, for the believers and followers of Jesus Christ, the predominant creed to identify what it means to be saved. Are you able to declare Jesus is Lord? When Paul writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 12, he's going to espouse upon the, the diversity of spiritual gifts that are given. But before he does, he says, no one can say by the Spirit that Jesus is cursed. Likewise, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. We, we see that little phrase given right there identifying that the indwelling of the Spirit is the confession from our lips that Jesus is not an an abstract Lord, like he's someone's Lord, but he is my Lord. I am the one who confesses that. And Paul says the only way you can do that is by the Spirit. Uh, Likewise, in 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul is dealing with a bunch of false teachers, people who are coming and trying to elevate themselves above Paul. And in his letter again to the church, he says, we are not preaching ourselves. We don't proclaim ourselves. When he uses the word proclaim or preach, he's talking about sharing the gospel. This is what he says. But we preach Christ as Lord and ourselves, your servants for Christ's sake. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think around verse 3. So we, we see very early on this little creedal phrase. It's really easy to remember, isn't it? Three words. Let's say it together. Jesus is Lord. Let's say it one more time. Ready? Jesus is is Lord. This is what we're going to examine this morning and ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? The passage we're going to examine is in Luke chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to take them out with me. Uh, We are going to look at a a passage that Jesus is giving. Uh, It's actually referenced as well in Matthew's gospel. It comes upon Jesus' warning to some who do not want to follow him the way that, that is required by God, meaning after the will of God. And Jesus says clearly in Matthew's gospel the judgment that will come upon those people. But in Luke's gospel... Uh, it's, it's phrased in such a beautiful way that this is what we're going to pay attention to. And for the remainder of our time, what we're going to do is we're going to take that first sentence that Jesus gives and we're going to dissect it this morning. Uh, do you guys remember biology class in high school? Anybody had to dissect a frog or a worm or something? Yeah, that's church today, folks. We're, we are going to um, slice up and look at the constituent components of what Jesus says in effort to to pull out the implication. That's what we're doing. If that sounds a little confusing, don't worry. We'll, we'll get there together. Um, Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 46. Luke records for us Jesus' words saying, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do what I say. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. What I want us to do in effort to examine the question, what do we mean when we call Jesus Lord? Is look at that first sentence. He says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? That, that sentence right there. And, and if we can divide that up into its implications, I think it will help build for us a really thorough understanding as to what it means to call Jesus Lord. So to begin with, the first thing that Jesus says is a question. He, he says, why do you? And I believe that this raises the issue within Jesus's lordship of accountability. Because Jesus is kind of, he's calling them on it. I don't know if you realize that, right? He, he's going to pose them, not a test question, but a question dealing with what's on the inside. Let, let, let me just examine your heart for a moment, Jesus says. Why? Now, if you're a parent, you know there's times where you've had to ask your children, now, why did you do that, right? What, what, what was going through your head when you decided to feed the dog spaghetti or whatever it might be, whatever was going on. Parents hold a kind of accountability over their children. And so with that, the first observation I have for us today is that the gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus implies accountability. I apologize for the tiny little blanks you have there in your sermon notes, but that's that first word, accountability. Let me say it again. God will transform lives through the gospel as the lordship of Jesus implies accountability. Now, I've already kind of preached a little earlier on this, right? In the garden, it wasn't to Satan we gave our allegiance. It was to ourselves. And so accountability is something that we now need to have returned to God um, there, there's a really beautiful passage in Romans chapter 14. We're going to be looking at a few scriptures. Hopefully you're able to flip back and forth for a while. You could leave Luke, but turn with me to Romans chapter 14. In chapter 14, uh, Paul is dealing with some issues in the church that are really disputable. They're, they're not really moral issues, but they're dividing the church. And so he, he brings up these subjects of like, which some people think one day is better than others. Some people think you shouldn't eat certain kinds of foods. And what was happening in the church is that they were judging one another because of these issues. People were either looking down on some, or they were uh, really choosing in their hearts to pass judgment over them. Uh, Jesus' answer to this is very humbling, but it's entirely upon this vein of his lordship. So, uh, Romans 14, look with me starting in verse 6. He who regards one day as special does so to the, what's your Bible say there? To the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the, what's your Bible say? To the Lord. He, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now watch this now, verse 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself alone. 
And none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Now, what gives you the right in your home to hold your children accountable? Who do they belong to? Were you tracking with me? Let me ask again. What gives you the right in your home to have your children accountable to you? Who do they belong to? And they, they, well, they belong to me, right? I am the one that is going to be uh, uh, in charge of helping to lead them and grow them. The same picture is true for the family of God. Who do you belong to? And so because of that, the implications of accountability fall if he is your Lord. Now, there are a lot of people in the world today that think that they won't ever have to answer to anybody. They really, they, they want to answer to themselves is how they live their lives. You know, despite whatever you think, who will you answer to on the day of judgment? Think about that for a moment. Who will you have to answer to on the day of the Lord? So the first implication here that we have starts in the question as Jesus turns to these who are following him and asks, why do you? It has to do with accountability. The second observation uh, has to do with confession. Now, I don't mean confession here like, um, come and bow your, confess your sins, not that kind of confession, but the kind of confession that means this is a, uh, an internal perspective of my heart that I am declaring with my lips. It's, it's a conviction that I hold that I am willing to pronounce. That's what I mean by confession. So Jesus next says, uh, why, why do you call me? You see, the gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus changes your allegiance. This is who you confess. I mean, I, I think the picture that we have, even for the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Think of that. Put your hand over your heart. I pledge allegiance to the... Think about what we're saying there. I mean, it, it's nationalism and, and, and American pride is, is fantastic, but Christian, be very careful where you put your final allegiance. There may come a day where the government decides to step in between you and your obedience to God, in which case, who are you going to pledge your allegiance to? So that's exactly the case of Jesus' question. Why do you call me? What is, it, what is it you're calling me? What do you, who do you call Jesus to be? Uh, one of the most beautiful passages we have for this comes in Romans chapter 10. The apostle Peter says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hold on, time out. We skipped right over it, didn't we? Anyone who calls on the name of the... There's that word again, Lord. The, the Greek word for this is kurios, not, not like a cat, not curious, kurios. And it means a position of authority. Uh, the primary use of it is seen in contrast with slaves. So if you had somebody who ruled over slaves, you called them what? A lord. Uh, it, it has to do, therefore, with this position. So someone who's in charge of slaves or servants are a lord. Um, the, the words that we would use for that would be like uh, master or the word owner. Uh, the second use of the word kurios is kind of a governing sense. So you could use the term commander or ruler, carry the semantical nuance of the word kurios. And then lastly, uh, the, the word has to do with the picture of power. And so somebody who is superior than you in power, you might correctly, semantically give the nuance to the word curious as king. All of those terms 
are ones that show that you and I have to declare him that in a way if we're going to be saved. Those are the words that Peter gives. So look with me just a few pages earlier. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is, what's it say? Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus takes up this exact idea when speaking to his followers. And he says this, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If any, hear it again, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, what's he have to do? Mark chapter 8, deny who? Yeah, it's not the devil. It's myself. Here's your problem. Church, everybody hearing me still? You, You guys with me? Here's the problem. We are born into a world thinking that you are the Lord. Your desires and your actions will determine that which you value and say and do. And Jesus says, I... I can't change your behavior then. I, I cannot do any of the things regarding your character unless that top level of governance changes. You need to be deprovisioned of yourself. You need to be wiped clean. This is why we get the terminology of needing to die or be born again in order to follow Jesus. So confession, Jesus says, why do you call me? Um, it has to do with your allegiance. Thirdly, it has to do with identity. This is a big one, and I'm going to take just a minute longer on this one because this is, this is where the, it gets really important. <clears throat> Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Well, P- Pastor, isn't that what you've been saying? That we got to call him Lord? Here's the problem. They lost definition of what that meant. Oh, sure, they were willing to call him Lord, but was he? Was there a change in accountability? Was there a change in allegiance? And we know there wasn't because they don't follow. The behavior does not follow. And this is an issue of identity. So as the gospel transforms lives, or the gospel will transform lives, as the lordship of Jesus defines and purifies grace. Let me say that again. That's your third blank there. The gospel transforms lives as the lordship of Jesus defines and purifies grace. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Jude. Way in the back. Tiny little, probably one page in your Bible. You'll you blink, you'll miss it. And we're going to look at verse 4. <clears throat> Jude here called to encourage the congregation to fight for the faith. And But before he even, even give them a word of encouragement, he knows that there are people who are twisting and changing the faith that has once been handed down and so his call is like a boxer in the ring you need to fight for it and then he gives them this warning in verse 4 did you find it book of jude verse 4 he says for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you they are ungodly men who pervert the grace of our god do you see the problem do you see what they're doing that's wrong they are perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and what's your Bible say? Do you see the connection here? If you deny Jesus' lordship, 
Do you know what you're going to do with grace? You may still hear the gospel. You, you may still believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that he even died for your sins. But if he is not your Lord, then you will fall on either side of that ditch when it comes to grace. And that's exactly what we see happening here to the folks that Jude is writing to. Now listen, men and women don't want to be con- convinced of their sin. People love their sin more than they love God. And to call him your Lord means that you reverse those priorities and you say, no, instead, I love God more than I love my sin. And so grace now is not something you have to do. It's neither a license to live in immorality. Grace is God's freely given gift to draw you, hear me now, to draw you to himself. Now let me prove that to you with one other passage. Turn to the book of Matthew. So go back to the Gospels, Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at the parallel passage to the one in Luke that we're reading. Matthew chapter 7, we're going to look in verse 21. If, you, if you've gotten there already in your Bible, give me a shout, amen. All right, if you're still turning, say, Lord, help me. I heard a couple. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, Jesus says, Watch the parallel here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform any miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of iniquity or you evildoers. Now, let me just explain this as quickly as I can, because it sounds like they're doing exactly what I'm saying you need to do. I'm saying you need to call Jesus your what? And look, that's what they're saying. They're like, we're doing that. We're we're saying that. In fact, Jesus says, uh, you must do the will of my Father in heaven. And immediately, I, I know Jesus, what he says next, because in their minds, they think, that's what we're doing. Look at what we're doing. They make a list here. Jesus helps them find it. Uh, Verse 22, many will say to me on the day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And look at the list. This is the other side of the ditch. God has not accepted you by a kind of grace. That means you have to do things. Can I say that again? God has not accepted you by a kind of grace that requires you to merit it or do things to earn it. In fact, if you hold as a contrast or or, or in connection from verse 21, he says, only the one who does the will of my Father, you actually get an answer to that in verse 23. He says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Let's talk about grace for just a minute. The grace that Jesus is referring to here is the grace that draws you into a relationship with him so that he becomes your ruler your master, your commander, your owner, your king. Those are all synonyms for what? L-O-R-D. That's what his grace is. It's not you doing things. And it's not you continuing to live in your sin because that both of those prove you don't know what it means to call him Lord. But to correctly call him Lord, I'm going to return again to the blank and number three, the gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus defines and purifies grace.
I'm going to skip over a bunch more. I have to say on that. Here we go. You guys good on that? Give me an amen if you're good. All right, here we go. Number four. We're going to look at our behavior now. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord? But you do not do. Oh, now we're getting real, Jesus. Now you're getting preachy, starting to meddle. Talking about what I do. So, the gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus changes your behavior. The gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus will change your behavior. I'm just going to dangle a little bit of bait here. This would be a great thing for us to talk about at Bible study because we just don't have time this morning. There is an entire controversy over the sermon that I'm giving you today called Lordship Salvation. And it's contrasted with a kind of offer of the gospel that's sometimes referred to as easy believism. And it's because there's a confusion. The confusion comes, and let me just show you. Again, this is very brief. We, could, we need to go further in depth on this. Um, Acts chapter 16. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Here is the primary verse that the easy believism folks will turn to to refute the teaching I'm offering you today. Acts chapter 16. This is Paul. He's been arrested. He's in jail. They actually shackle him up against the wall and there in prison, he and Silas, do you know what they start to do as they're, as they're shackled up? They start to sing. How awesome is this? And all the other prisoners are like listening to them sing. And then here's what happens. At midnight, there's an earthquake and the, the, uh, their bonds are broken and uh, they're, they're set free. The, the guard thinks that they escaped and the guard knows he's going to go under trial and get killed. So he's about to kill himself. But Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. We're right here. We haven't gone anywhere. And watch what he says. The jailer called for lights, verse 29, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas and then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How awesome is that question, huh? I mean, that's just like a softball pitch, right? You ever get one of those from someone on a plane sitting next to you? Hey, what do I need to do to be saved? This is awesome. This is a, let, me, let me tell you the gospel. So watch the answer. Everybody ready? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, the easy believism folks will turn right here and they'll say, see, all you have to do is what? All you have to do is believe. But did you see what they miss? What does it say? Believe in what? Believe in the Lord Jesus. It doesn't say believe in Jesus. Let me ask you a question now that James asks his readers. He says, uh, do the demons believe in God? Yeah, let, let me tell you something. The demons believe better than you and I do. Because James says, they believe that God is one. They believe in God. And they shudder. They quake in their belief and understanding of God. Now, there are far too many evangelical churches where God is just, the man upstairs, or he's my big... You know, there, there's this looseness with how we refer to God. The demons themselves believe. So let me ask you the question. Is belief enough? Take your head no. Because it doesn't say just believe. It says believe in the Lord Jesus. All right. There's a lot more to say there. A lot more I'd like to say concerning James. Let's move on to the fifth one. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I? Oh, look, look who Jesus puts back in the driver's seat. He puts himself in the driver's seat. This has to do with submission. The gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus 
brings submission to God's will. Uh, you, you heard the verse, Teresa read it for us out of 1 Peter already. The context around that verse, uh, always be prepared to give an answer for anybody who asks the reason for the hope that you have. We're, we, we've heard that passage before. Like, hopefully you're ready. We think evangelism, but we miss the first half of it because it's found in a context of suffering. Peter says, be willing to suffer and always set apart in your heart Christ as what? What word do you think I'm fishing for? As Lord. 1 Peter 1, 5, or 3.15 says, always set apart Christ in your heart as the Lord. And then always be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You cannot miss that first part because you, hear me now, you will not suffer for his name unless you're convinced of his will. All of the apostles, all of the early Christ followers understood that. Because they weren't chasing after their will and their desires, they were submitted to his. Now let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you always like God's will. Good, if we got honest folks here at church, right? Because sometimes you might not like that. But do you know what it means to call him your Lord? If he says go, what are you going to do? I'm going to go. If he says, here's a go. If he says jump, what are you going to say? How? Yeah, I mean, he's not going to say that, but you get the point, right? So it's submission to his will. Number six, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So here's the last one that we have for this first dissected sentence. The gospel transforms lives as the lordship of Jesus creates obedience. Let me just read for you a passage out of Romans chapter 6. You could turn there and follow along. It's chapter 6, verse 19 through 23. Listen to Paul's words. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life, I'm going to fish for a word here, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus creates obedience. All right, just to do justice to our main passage, turn with me now and we're going to wrap this up to Luke, again, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, because I want you to see what Jesus says concerning lordship in verses 48, he says, He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Here's, here's our concluding point with this. The gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus protects you from wrath. Protects you from God's judgmental wrath. 
The gospel will transform your life as the lordship of Jesus protects you from wrath. Listen to me now. What Jesus says here is not given to you so that you find a better way of building a house. Y'all with me on that? He's not talking about construction. He's not offering you this idea that if you obey him, the little trials of life will go better, like the raising waters that come because of the hurricane or the flood damage, and you'll just have less siding work to repair. It's not something small in your life that Jesus is referring to. Jesus is referring to the judgment of the day of the Lord. That is what he's referring to here. This isn't some nice way of you having a better life now. This is you being saved from hell. That's what he's talking about. This is you finding eternal life and not eternal death. We have to make sure that we catch this clearly. Because otherwise we're going to, again, feign to properly understand what lordship means. When Jesus says here that the house collapsed and its destruction was complete, there's nothing to rebuild. There's nothing to rebuild. And that will be the condition of our lives without Jesus. There will be nothing left to rebuild. And so I'll repeat one last time. The gospel will transform lives as the lordship of Jesus will protect us from wrath. So let's, let's get some application and pray and be done. Let me say this. If the gospel does not transform your life, it's probably not the gospel. Or you probably have not properly understood lordship. So how does Jesus define lordship? One last time asking you to peek into the text. This is verse 47. He says, I will show you what he is like who, number one, comes to me. Number two, hears my words. And number three, puts them into practice. There's your one, two, three, church. You ready? What does it mean to call him Lord? It means you come to him. It means you go to him. In John chapter 6, Jesus says this to all the people following. He says, "Um, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws them. No one can come unto me unless the Father draws them. And he says, does this offend you? Because he kind of knows that it offends them. And uh, from that point on, guess what the followers of Jesus stopped doing? They stopped following him. Because they didn't want to be drawn by the Father. Who who did they want to be in charge? They wanted to be the ones in charge. And so Jesus turns to the twelve. He turns to the disciples and he asks them, Are you too going to abandon me? And this is what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. What was the word that Peter used to refer to him? Curios. Lord, to whom shall we go? I hope you have turned to Jesus. Everything else you turn to in this life is bankrupt. It'll all burn someday. None of it will satisfy. Step number one is you must come to him. Step number two is you must hear his word. I hope for you as a follower of Jesus, there is a hunger in your spirit for these words and for the living word, Jesus Christ. And that you regularly and devotionally need to feast off of his word. We need to hear it in order to transform us. So number one, you must come to him. Number two, you must hear his word. And then number three, you must put those things into practice and integrate them into your life. For then and only then will it be evident that you're no longer the Lord of your life. But he is. Amen.